All right, church, well, if you want to open your Bibles with me to John chapter 7. Dave, am I good? Yeah? All right, you all hear me? All right, there we go. John chapter 7. We're going to continue on in our study of this gospel account. And uh, we've got 52 verses to cover this morning, so we're going to hop right into it, all right? I want to ask if you can remember a time when somewhere in your life you were really thirsty. I mean, not like I could use a drink, but like I'm really thirsty. For me, one memory that comes to mind is high school football. We had two days in the middle of August, 100 degree weather, full helmet, uh, full pads and helmet. And um, we would be doing sprints all morning, all afternoon. And you get so thirsty that your tongue would literally stick to the top of your mouth. And when you're doing these sprints and you're, and you're parched like that, and you can see the water station in the background squirting the water, and you're that thirsty, it's torture to hear the coach say, do more sprints, more sprints, more sprints. Because the only thing you can think about in that moment of your thirst is, when are we going to stop and get a drink? I need water. And our bodies, as you know, do need water. Our bodies are actually about 60% made of water. They need to replenish that water that we lose each day through sweat and other ways that we lose it. And if we don't replenish it, our organs begin to shut down. For that reason, Dr. Burns, who's a nephrologist, a kidney doctor, at the National Kidney Foundation, he notes that thirst is one of the most potent drives for behavior that we have. Thirst is one of the most potent drives for behavior that we have. We know that, right? I think God gives us this physical thirst for a reason because it points, we we know that our physical thirst is a matter of survival, but that physical thirst points to something deeper in each of us. It points to a spiritual thirst, a thirst that drives our daily decisions our priorities, the things that we're willing to make sacrifices for. It's this thirst that sets the course for what we are convinced will make us happy or bring us life. And the things that we believe will make us happy or give us life could be something dark, like drugs or pornography or drunkenness. It could be something harmless, like our jobs, a relationship, going shopping, striving to be beautiful or successful. Or it could be something that we're convinced about that will give us life and happiness, something that's respectable, like religion. Whatever it is, what we think will satisfy us that we find in this world, it satisfies us for a little while, but soon it will let us down. It will leave us thirsty. It will leave us discouraged and cynical and even angry that it didn't deliver like we'd thought or hoped. I wonder if you can identify with that, knowing the disappointment of what you thought would satisfy you, only not coming through to satisfy like you'd hoped. I think God knows that's a universal experience, and so in the Gospel of John, the Gospel account that we hold in our hands this morning, That gospel account was written to show us a different way. 
John gives us his purpose statement in 2031. John 2031 says, these, the gospel of John, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. Why is the gospel of John written? He says, so that you may have life. John writes to give us life, the life that we thirst for, the life that we were created for, the life that is found in Jesus Christ. Problem is, if you were with us last week when we read chapter 6, the problem is, is that Jesus was just rejected by thousands of people. If you could go back to chapter 6 and, and walk among those people, Jesus' online reviews would be zero stars. His online reviews would be thumbs down. They're ditching him. They're done. Because his teaching had become difficult. And so you see people leaving Jesus saying, ah, he's wrong. It's, it's not worth it. it it's not, he's not worth following. It leaves us with the question, okay, how do we know? John says that life is in him. How do we know that John's right? People are leaving Jesus. How do we know that life is in his name? Well, this morning, I want to begin with the big idea and then go back to the text to show that and, and to see if this is what we're seeing. Here's the big idea that we see in John 7. We know... Jesus is the life-giving rescuer because he fulfills God's word. We know that Jesus is God's life-giving rescuer because he fulfills God's word. That's what John wants to show us in, in John 7, I believe. And the setting of chapter 7 is, is really important for us, for us Gentiles most of us here, I think, are Gentiles. None of us come from a Jewish background, as we might not know this. The setting of chapter 7 is what's known as the Feast of Booths. It's one of three festivals that Jewish men were required to come to Jerusalem to once a year to celebrate. It's also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. And the text is going to give us three time stamps. So if you look at the text with me real quick. Verse 2, the Jews' Feast of Booths was at hand. That's the first time stamp. Verse 14, the middle of the feast. And then the third timestamp, verse 37. The last day of the feast. And so with those three timestamps, we, we, we can break chapter 7 into three sections or three scenes. That's what we're going to do this morning. Scene 1 is the beginning of the feast, verses 1 through 13. Scene 2 is the middle of the feast, verses 14 through 36. Scene 3 is the last day of the feast, verses 37 through 52. You with me? All right, let's turn to God's word. Chapter 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went out about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may also see the works that you were doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. 
But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews who were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Again, friends, the, 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 in order for us to understand this text, we need to understand the Feast of the Booths is an important part of the plot. It's an important part of the narrative in John 7. Again, Jewish families from all over, Jeru- from all over the, the countryside would, would travel to Jerusalem once a year to celebrate this eight-day festival. And what they would do is they would build these little huts, these little booths or tabernacles out of sticks and branches. And it was a, a festival that they would use, that God would commanded that they would commemorate and remember God's previous delivering them out of Egypt, out of slavery. We know from the Old Testament that the Feast of Booths was celebrated sometime in the fall um, after the, the grape harvest. And so uh, if you would go to the Feast of Booths back in this day, it would be a joyful celebration. There would be lots of feasting and celebration. It was a time of joy remembering God's delivering them from, the, from slavery and God's providing for them even in the wilderness. So verse 1 begins with Jesus in Galilee, which is about 60 or 70 miles north of Jerusalem where that feast would be held. And we know from the text that he's not in a rush to get down into Judea, and we're told because the Jewish leaders are still trying to kill him. Good reason not to go to Judea, right? But despite the danger... Jesus' brothers urge him to go up to the feast. This is not the first time we met Jesus' brothers. We know that uh, Joseph and Mary had other, uh, other kids after Jesus. We met them first in John 2, and here we see them again. And we're told that they don't believe in him, but they're urging him to go to the feast. Look at verse 3 again. His brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that the, your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Remember in chapter 6, Jesus was popular. I mean, there was was a crowd of thousands and thousands of people following him everywhere he would go, listening to his every word. This This is just six months ago. But now those crowds had ditched Jesus. They scattered His brothers now see this feast of booths as a public relations opportunity. Jesus, listen, we know what you can do. This is your chance. There's going to be thousands of people in Jerusalem. Go there. Do your thing, Jesus. Put on a show. Do some miracles. This is your chance to win the crowds back. That's what they're saying. So why do they want this? Why are they so desirous of Jesus to be famous and that they're willing to actually put his life at risk because they're still trying to kill Jesus there? Why are they eager for him to go? Look at verse five. We see the answer there. For because not even his brothers believed in him. Let that sink in. Their unbelief, verse five, 
was driving their desire and their demand for Jesus to go and win the crowd back. They believe Jesus has power. They've seen that Jesus can do miracles. They know that. What they don't believe, what they're not willing to trust God for, is the reason that God the Father sent him into the world. They've got their own agenda. And their agenda for Jesus is different than God the Father's agenda for Jesus. They want him to go to the feast to be known openly, he says in verse 3. They want him to go to the feast to show himself off to the world, he says in verse 4. The brothers' concern, their focus, is the praise of man. That's what they want. They understand that if Jesus, their brother, is in the spotlight, (laughs) they get the spotlight too. They understand if Jesus, their brother, is famous, then they also are famous. So they're nudging Jesus. Come on, let's go. Let's do this thing. So Jesus, in verse 6, stops them and corrects them. He says in verse 6, my time has not yet come. We see this phrase all throughout John. My, my hour has not yet come. My time has not yet come. That's what he's saying here. Now, if we, if we keep reading in John's gospel, by the time we get to chapter 12, verse 23, Jesus will say, okay, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So there is a time that he will be glorified, but his glorification will not come the way that the, the brothers are, are thinking. His glorification will not come by impressing the crowds. In chapter 12, we realize that his glorification will come by his humiliation. His glorification, his crown, will come after his crucifixion, after his death. And that's what these brothers don't want to hear. They don't want that. They want the shortcut to the throne. They want the shortcut to the glory. That's why Jesus says, my time has not yet come. He refuses to be pressured by the evil desires of his brothers. He won't take a shortcut to the throne. He operates on God's timetable to accomplish God's agenda, not man's timetable for man's agenda. And verse seven clarifies that in an even more punchy way. Look at verse seven. He says to his brothers, this world cannot hate you but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You kind of hear the echo of John 3, 19 through 21, where Jesus says he's the light that exposes the darkness of the world. That's what he's saying here. Jesus came to glorify God as Father. And Jesus came to serve people like you and me. To serve by giving his life as a ransom for sinners. Sadly, the world hates him for that because his coming to ransom sinners like us also means that he exposes our sin. He's the light that exposes our darkness, and, and, and they, don't, they don't like it. We don't like it. But in contrast, Jesus says to his brothers, the world cannot hate you. And here's what he's saying. The reason the world does not hate you, the reason the world cannot hate you is because you're like the world. You operate by the same self-centered, glory-seeking, performance-based value system that the world operates by. So the world hates me, but it's not going to hate you. You can go whenever you want. 
I think this is also what explain this also helps to explain the apparent contradiction in verse 8 and 10. Because Jesus says in verse 8, I am not going up to the feast, but then later he goes in verse 10, he goes up to the feast. But this is not a contradiction. This is not Jesus telling a lie. Jesus didn't mean that he was not going to the feast at all. What he was saying was he was not going to the feast as they wanted him to. That's what he was saying. And then verse 10 makes that explicitly clear. He went to the feast in private, not publicly, as his brothers hoped. If you drink, if you drink salt water, let's imagine you have this big glass of salt water from the ocean. If you drink salt water, it looks like a normal glass of water, right? But you guzzle that salt water. What happens is your kidneys actually need more water from your body to flush out the excess salt that you just put in. So in drinking salt water, you actually get more dehydrated. And if you keep it up, you will die of thirst, even though you're drinking lots of water. Like Jesus' brothers, many of us have a use for Jesus. We like certain things that he does or certain things that he says. We can see the usefulness of Jesus now and then. But like a person who's floating on the Atlantic Ocean, these people look around. Yeah, there's a need for Jesus, but they look around the Atlantic Ocean and they see lots of water. And they assume they're good. I'm not thirsty. <laughs> look, I got, I, got, I, got, I got more water than I know what to do with. I'm, I'm okay. I'm good. Maybe there's a use for Jesus, but I'm good. Friends, that could be you today. You don't have a problem with Jesus, right? You're not odd. You don't, you, you're not, you, you don't hate him. And you even see that he's helpful for some people. But deep down, you assume that there's no rush to come to Jesus. This is not a matter of desperation. I mean, look around. We've got lots of water to drink from. Verse 12 corrects that thinking. Verse 12 highlights a dispute over Jesus. Verse 12 says, while some said he's a good man, others said, no, he is leading people astray. I think what he's saying here, John, John's saying here, including this, is that it's important for us to realize that there is no middle ground with Jesus. Either he's good and you should trust him, or he's leading people astray. There's no middle ground. You've got two options, two ways to live. So what about you, church? What about you, friend? Not just what you think cognitively, but what does your life say about Jesus? Does your life demonstrate that he is good? Does your life demonstrate that he is trustworthy? Or does your life demonstrate that he's leading people astray and that we ought to look somewhere else for what we rely on. Jesus' brothers show us the importance of knowing why Jesus came. Because when we know why Jesus came, why God the Father sent him, it actually awakens a thirst for Jesus that will soon eclipse all our other thirsts. 
we'll see the priority of our thirst for Jesus above every other thirst. We'll see that we're actually sitting on the Atlantic Ocean and that that water won't satisfy and Jesus alone will. Do you believe that Jesus is good? What if you struggle to believe that he's good? How do you resolve the uncertainty in your heart and your mind about who Jesus is? Well, John, being a, a, a faithful pastor here, actually puts the microphone in front of Jesus, and he lets Jesus answer that question for us. And I think it's really important for us. If we want to resolve the uncertainty, we need to listen to Jesus. What does he say about himself? How does he answer that question? In the next, season, in the next scene, Jesus speaks for himself, and we need to listen in order to understand that he's good. Scene number two is this, the middle of the feast the middle of the feast. We're going to see this in 14 through 36. So look at verse 14. About the middle of the feast, again, that's the Feast of Booths, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether this teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a whole man's body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. We'll pause there. So somewhere in the middle of this eight-day feast, Jesus shows up in the temple, and he begins teaching. And people listening to Jesus are so amazed, so, they're, they're so taken back by the authority that Jesus speaks with, with his grasp of God's word, with his teaching. They're like, okay, what are this guy's credentials? And thankfully, in verse 16, Jesus answers them. He says, here's my credentials. <laughs> I came from God the Father. And his message, Jesus' message, is the very message that God the Father gave him. Who taught Jesus? God the Father. Who gave him the message to speak? God the Father. Those are his credentials. The tricky thing about that is that many people today will claim to have a message from God. So as we read this claim from Jesus in verse 16, how can we know that Jesus' words are the words of God? Well, Jesus answers that in verse 17, and he's saying you don't have to be really smart. Knowing whether his teaching is from God or man is not a matter of having the right connections it's a matter of your heart. Look at verse 17 again. Jesus says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. 
In other words, if you come to God in his word and you trust that God knows what's best for you, if you come to God in his word and if you are willing, you're honestly willing to do God's will, no matter what it is, Jesus says, you'll understand. It's not a matter of intelligence. It's not a matter of being really good or having the right connections. God will show you if you're willing. But if, like these religious leaders, you come to the Bible with your mind made up, I'll do this, but not that. I'm okay with this truth in the Bible, (laughs) but I'm not about to accept that truth in the Bible. If you come to God and his word like that, you will not understand God's voice. Not because God is not speaking, but rather because you are not listening. Friends, God does not play hard to get. Jesus came to us as God in the flesh. He says that in chapter one, verse 14, in order to make God the Father known. He says that in chapter one, verse 18. God came to us as the word of God to make himself known. He is not hiding the truth from us. He's bending over backwards. He's taking on flesh. He's doing everything that is is needed to go the distance to show himself to us. The problem is not in God not speaking. The problem is in our unwillingness to do what he says. Friends, if you are not yet a Christian, if you're still investigating the claims of Christianity, so glad you're here today. But the the challenge, the encouragement based on verse 17 is that you read God's word yourself. And as you read the Bible, do so with an open heart and an open mind. My non-Christian men, if you're reading the Bible, pray something like this. Pray, God, if I'm going to read your word. If this is true, I am committed to changing. If you show me that this is true, I will give you my life. I'll, I'll go wherever you want me to go. I will do whatever you tell me to do. Just show me whether or not this is true. If you're, willing, if you're honestly willing like that, Jesus says he will get you there. You will know the voice of God in the pages of Scripture. That's encouraging. So in verses 1 through 13, we first meet Jesus' brothers there. They they don't believe. Now it's the Jewish crowd that doesn't believe. And we know they don't believe. Here's the evidence. Because they're trying to kill him. That's what verse 1 tells us. And when Jesus calls them on it, you're trying to kill me, They respond to him in anger. Verse 20, you have a demon. Who's trying to kill you? What's going on here? Why are they trying to kill Jesus? Verse 21, Jesus answers, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. The work from this context we know is is, is Jesus referring back to the man that he healed back in chapter 5. 
the paralytic that was paralyzed for 38 years. Jesus healed that man on the Sabbath, and ever since chapter 5, they've been trying to kill Jesus. But again, what is it? I mean, it's one thing to disagree with Jesus, what he did in chapter 5, but what is it that elicits such an angry response that they want him dead? What's going on there? Look at verse 22 again. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that this is from Moses, but it was from your fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? What he's saying here is that if, if you, you Jews who, who actually have God's law and uphold God's law, if you have no problem circumcising a male child if they're, you know, if, 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 if on the eighth day, if the eighth day falls on the Sabbath, you have no problem circumcising the child on the Sabbath to keep God's law. If you're okay with that, then, then you have no right to be angry that Jesus mercifully made a, whole, 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 a man's whole body well on the Sabbath. You're okay with, with one little part of, the, of a man's body, you know, circumcision, but I made the whole man's body well, and you're, you have a beef with me. That's inconsistent. That's, a, that's hypocritical. And he shuts down their argument. But I think he's doing more than inserting truth to the misunderstanding. I think Jesus is actually showing in this section that he came to fulfill what circumcision and the Sabbath pointed forward to. Notice in verse 22, Jesus reminds them that circumcision didn't come from Moses, but from the fathers. Why does he include that detail? By the fathers, he's pointing back to Abraham. That's when the, that's when the sign of circumcision was established. So if you know your Old Testament, in Genesis 15, God makes a promise to Abraham. I'm going to make you a nation. I'm going to give you descendants. As many as the stars are in the sky. He's, he's getting old. He's about 90 years old. And, and Abraham's like, well, humanly speaking, it's not possible. But he believes God. And in in Genesis 15, his faith, not his works, are credited to Abraham as righteousness. He's justified. Okay, that's cool. Two chapters later, Genesis 17, that's when God establishes the sign of circumcision as a sign of that covenant promise he made in 15. In other words, the removal of the flesh in circumcision is meant to be a reminder that God himself would redeem a people for himself, not by the works of the flesh. That's, the, that's, what's, that's what's signified in the removal of the flesh, but rather by sending the seed of a woman who would one day be the savior of the world. You want to read more about that? Read Galatians 3 this afternoon. Paul unpacks that beautifully in Galatians 3. So Jesus is saying, you know circumcision, the, the, the rest that that points to, I've come to fulfill. Well, what about the Sabbath? Well, ever since the Sabbath was established in the Old Testament, the Sabbath was a, a gift from God to, to mankind. It was a call to trust God. A reminder that God would provide us the ultimate rest, not by our doing works to earn his favor, not by doing works ourselves, but that he would do the work that we failed to do. You want to read about that? Read Hebrews 4 this afternoon. 
The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 4 unpacks that, 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 that future rest for the believer that's fulfilled in Christ beautifully. The point is, is that Jesus is fulfilling both of these old covenant pictures. It's like what he was talking about in chapter 5, verse 39, that the Old Testament bears witness, points forward to Jesus. It's a signpost, and now he's saying, I'm, I'm here. I, I'm fulfilling what that was pointing forward to. Ah, but now we see why they want to kill him. It had to do with their thirst and what they believed would satisfy them. Friends, the cistern that these Jewish crowds drank from was their law-keeping. It's a cistern that doesn't hold any water. Jesus already said in verse 19, none of you keeps the law. But they didn't want to hear it. The truth is very clear. They're, they're suppressing the truth that Jesus makes very clear. They don't want to hear it. They saw Jesus as a threat to the very thing they believed would make them happy and give them life, their law-keeping. And in fulfilling the old covenant, Jesus is saying, you can't do it. No, 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 we can. You can't do it. No, 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 we can. And they're so set on this that this is going to make them happy that Jesus is a threat to them satisfying their thirst. Jesus has got to go. And so they try to kill him. Verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly. And they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Let me just pause there, because I think one of the confusing things that might be confusing about chapter 7 is, is that there were actually two major opinions at this point in human history about the Christ. Um, one about the Christ's origins. One, one thought was that his origin would be unknown. In other words, the, the act of redemption would be, would be happening, and then all of a sudden, Christ would appear. And, and we didn't, you wouldn't know where he came from. That was one thought. We know that's not true, though. The other thought about the Christ's origins would, that he would, would be that he would come from Bethlehem. And we're going to see this other view later on in verse 42. But they're kind of, they're kind of wrestling with Jesus' identity in, 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 in terms of his origins. And so look at verse 28. Jesus, so Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, you know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. Remember, he's speaking to a very religious group of people celebrating the Feast of Booths, and Jesus says to them, you don't know God. Verse 29. I know him. For I came from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he, not, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests 
and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. They don't like that Jesus, that people are believing in Jesus. That's a threat to them. So they send officers to arrest him. Verse 33, Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews then said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. Again, you see this puzzled, confused response. They don't get who Jesus is and what he's saying, in part because their approach to Jesus is an unwillingness to do what he says. And the crowd that we see here in this section is divided. Some people want to arrest him still. That's in verse 30. Others in this section believe in him. We see that in verse 31. There's a division in the crowd. And so the scene becomes intense. The scene becomes chaotic. Thousands of people in in Jerusalem for the feast are now divided on what to do with Jesus, about who he is. But amidst all this chaos, amidst all this confusion, look, look at why they don't arrest Jesus. Look at verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. Now listen, again, there's people that want to kill Jesus. It's in their best interest to get rid of him. But it's not like Jesus is sitting on a tank. It's not like Jesus has a bazooka. He's, he's just hanging out in the temple. He's teaching. So why don't they do it? Verse 30. Because, no one laid a hand on him, why? Because his hour had not yet come. Don't just pass over that. The Pharisees, the rulers of the Jews, they think they're calling the shots. They think they're in charge. What we say goes. We set the standard. But they are not in charge. In the midst of the chaos, Jesus remains in complete control. He is doing God's will in God's timing. The reason they didn't lay a hand on him was because it wasn't his hour yet. You can't touch him if God says it's not time yet. It's only when God says it's time that they can touch him. And so because he's in control, Jesus is not rattled. And Jesus' Jesus' confidence illustrates what we sang earlier this morning. I love love in leaning on the everlasting arms. Verse 3, what have I to dread? What have I to fear? Leaning on the everlasting arms. I have blessed peace with my Lord so near. Leaning on the everlasting arms. What Jesus is able to say because he knows God, he is, we can have. Because his God is our God. That's why we sang that. And so rather than being rattled by the crowds and, and coerced in what they demand of him, Jesus issues a loving warning in verse 33. He says, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. So he knows they're, 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 they're sending the officers to arrest him. He sees that his coming death is just around the corner. It's not his hour yet, but his death is soon to be. And so he's saying, listen, guys, I, I, I've come here that, that you might have life. In a little bit, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise again, I'm going to return to the Father. And when I'm with my Father, you will seek me and you will not find me. 
I'm here to give you life right now. If you reject me, there's gonna come a point when you cannot come to me. Those, that warning in verse 34 is a chilling warning. It, it gives a sense of urgency to us. Don't put off responding to Jesus. There may come a point when you cannot find him. You cannot come to him. We're not promised this afternoon, let alone tomorrow. He comes to us in his word this morning to give us life. And he's saying to this crowd, if, if, you, if nothing changes in you, you won't be able to find me. Yes, you're religious, but religion is not enough. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not religion. You need me. But they don't yet see it. It's interesting that the unbelief of Jesus' brothers led them to love his miracles. But the unbelief of the Jewish crowds made them want to kill Jesus because of his miracles. On the outside, they looked different. One loved his miracles, one hated his miracles. But underneath the engine that's driving both Jesus' brothers at this point in the story, they'll believe later, but not yet, the engine that's driving both the brothers and the Jewish crowd that's rejecting him is that they have the same thirst. And they're drinking from the same cisterns of this world whose joy is rooted in the praise of man, not in the grace of God. And an addiction to the world's applause is the very thing that destroys faith. And if we drink from the world's empty cisterns, they will eventually leave us disappointed, hurt, and if we're addicted to them, looking for more. The world's cisterns are empty cisterns that cannot hold water. Now before we move on, I wanna, I wanna give a historical note just so we understand what happened in the Feast of Booths. Each morning during this eight-day festival, the, the people would gather in the morning at the temple. When the priest was ready, he would come out with a golden pitcher and he would lead the people down to the pool of Siloam, which is outside of the temple. And he would take this golden pitcher he would dip it into the pool of Siloam, and as he pulled up the water from the pool of Siloam, the people would read out loud the words of Isaiah 12, verse 3. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. They're looking forward to the future salvation of God. And so this, this, this whole festival was anticipation, filled with hope and with joy. And with a pitcher full of water, the priest would go back into the temple and he'd go to the altar and he'd pour out the water on the temple. Every morning for seven days, the priest would lead these people in this water ceremony. But on the eighth day, it changes. Verse 37 introduces us to our last scene in the text. It begins this way. On the last day of the feast, the great day, so this is the eighth day of the, free, of the feast, and, and on the eighth day, this last day that, that verse 37 refers to, the priest would once again fill his pitcher with water. They would lead the people back into the temple. But this time he would circle the, the altar seven times, building the suspense. And he would take his pitcher, raise it high, and for the last time at the Feast of Booths, pour out this water on the altar. And so we can imagine in that moment, 
the last day of the Feast of Booths, a quiet hush. All eyes on the water being poured out. A symbol of a future salvation filling the air of that moment with hope and expectancy. In that moment, verse 37, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He didn't whisper that. He cried out. What a wonderful word. A wonderful word of promise, not just for them, but for us. It was Charles Spurgeon who described our thirst. He said it this way, our thirst is the absence of a necessary. Our thirst is the absence of a necessary. Thirst is not a passing whim that we can ignore. Thirst is a painful need that demands our attention lest we die. We have thirsts. Not just physical thirst, but soul thirst. Thirst where our, we, we feel our guilt, we feel our emptiness, we feel the shame from our sin. We feel a thirst for deliverance from that sin. Friends, are you aware of that thirst? Do you feel that thirst when you feel lost and you are aware of your need for acceptance? If in any sense you feel that need, Jesus' invitation is for you. His invitation is not reserved for a hard-to-get-into group of the elites. His invitation is for anyone it says, anyone, anyone who thirsts, do you thirst? Church, do you thirst? His invitation is for you. Well, how do we come and drink the water that he gives? We saw this last week in Isaiah 55, verse 1. The prophet says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. You don't need money to buy the water that Jesus offers. His offer is free. And to come to him, to come to Jesus is to trust in Jesus. It is to believe in Jesus. And here's the thing. Trusting Jesus involves yielding to Jesus. C.S. Lewis illustrates this really well in his children's novel, The Silver Chair. It's part of the uh, Chronicles of Narnia series. And the main character of the, the silver chair is a girl named Jill, and she actually sees a lion in the beginning of the book. And she's so frightened by this lion that she runs for her life. And she's running and running and running until she becomes so weary from running, she collapses and she, she's about to die of thirst. And as she's, as she's there on the ground, she hears the gurgling sound of a, of a, a brook nearby. And so she gets up and she staggers weak and weary to the brook. But when she gets to the water, the lion is there, crouching, looking at her. Are you thirsty, said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. Um, may I, could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. 
the answer, the lion answers with a low growl. It was clear that he was not going to move anywhere. Okay, well, will you promise not to do anything to me if I come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. I dare not come and drink then, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step closer. I suppose I must go and look somewhere else for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. Friends, when we come to Jesus to drink, we don't come to a kitty cat. We come to the lion of Judah. We come not on our terms. We come on his terms. He is not a domesticated cat that we can control and set the terms. He does not promise not to do anything to us. Got to trust him. And I think that's why it's so important that we grasp what many understood back in verse 12, that simple yet profound truth that he is good. Friends, if you're not yet a Christian, I pray that you see Jesus as good today. I pray that as you sit under his word that you become aware of your need for him, that you recognize that all the thirsts that you've known in your life are pointing to the ultimate thirst of your thirst for Jesus. Our deepest need is to be reconciled to our creator, to have our sin cleansed. We all have sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory. And like the Jews in verse 19, none of us have kept his good law. And because God is good, he is not indifferent to our sin and our rebellion. In Ephesians 5 verse 6, Paul says, let no one deceive you. Because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. God's wrath. Left to ourselves, that's, that's you, that, that's me. That's our greatest need, to be delivered from the wrath of God, the righteous wrath of God. And the good news of Christianity is that's why Jesus came. Not to be popular, not to not to give you a, a Mercedes-Benz or, or give you, you know, to act like your genie in a bottle. He came to give you life. And on the cross 2,000 years ago, the sinless son of God gave himself up. He willingly died on the cross in our place for our sin. And then on the third day, he rose from the grave and he lives today so that he can say to us today on May 16th, 2021, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Friends, do you hear him saying that to you? He's saying that to you today. It's an invitation to you. I pray, friends, that if you don't yet know Christ, that today you turn from your sin, you hear Christ's invitation, you turn from your sin, and you come to him. You trust in him alone. What happens? If you do this, what happens? What's the result? Verse 38. Whoever believes in me, Jesus says, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, 
whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Notice in verse 38, John says, as the scriptures has said. That's his way of highlighting for us, Jesus is fulfilling God's word. That's all we know we can trust him. And those who trust in Christ will be cleansed from their sin because God is faithful. But it's more than just fire insurance. Becoming a Christian is more than just fire insurance. It's more than, Christianity is more than just a, you you come to God, make the decision, then you live the rest of your life as you want. It's more than a one-time spiritual transaction. Becoming a Christian means entering into a relationship with God. It means receiving Jesus. It's not that Jesus just gives you what you need, it's that he gives you himself. He is the bread of life. He is the living water who satisfies. And so when we come to him, he doesn't just satisfy us for a little bit, like a loaf of bread might do. He satisfies us with himself, such that out of our heart will flow rivers of living water. You're not just a little satisfied, you're so satisfied it overflows. Friends, those who operate by a performance-based value system of this world, competition, comparison, that's how you make yourself somebody, the world uses people to get ahead. But those who trust Jesus, those who know his grace, they have something to give to the people around them. Not because they're great, but because Jesus has given in them his spirit. There's something different about those people. If you meet a Christian trusting Jesus, there's something about that person you want to be around. I want what they have. So how do we experience the presence of Jesus now when we know that he has, after his death and resurrection, ascended to the right hand of the Father? If he's at the right hand of the Father, how do we experience his presence now? We have the presence of Jesus with us because he gives us his spirit. That's what he's talking about in verse 39. He gives his spirit to dwell in you to every believer. Being satisfied in Jesus is not a one-time thing. It's a daily coming to him and being satisfied in him. We grow in contentment by growing in our relationship with God by the normal means of grace. I don't got anything fancy for you. Bible reading, prayer, coming to church, fellowship with other believers. You grow in your relationship with God. You say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read and pray until you satisfy me, God. I, I believe what Jesus said in verse 37. It's like a Jacob-like wrestling. I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. Because you said this. You said you'd satisfy. So you keep doing that until he, he will keep his word. But you've got to come to him. Verse 40. We're almost done. Hold on. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Hasn't the scripture said that this Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Has any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, 
who had been gone to him before, chapter 3, and who was one of them, the Pharisees, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. (laughs) The buoy of truth pops up and we suppress the truth about God and our unrighteousness. It's just clear. But there didn't, like, has any prophet arisen from Galilee? Yeah. Lots have. Jonah's, isn't the the Christ come from Bethlehem? Yeah, that's where Jesus is from. But they don't see it. All they want to do is get rid of him because he's a threat. So chapter chapter 7 ends once again with this debate about Jesus. Some believe in him, he's the Christ, others don't. And they want him dead. What's interesting is the officers who, they're not Roman officers, these are Jewish officers who know the law, they don't arrest, they're sent to arrest Jesus, and they're like, I can't. Why? Because we've never heard somebody speak like this guy. There's something about him. And yet they suppress, these, these, these rulers suppress that truth. Friends, in light of the back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, the division over Jesus in this text, I think we need to ask ourselves as the readers today, where do you see yourself in this narrative? Some believe, some reject. Some are in, some are skeptical. Where do you see yourself in the text? Do you, say, do you see yourself with Jesus, enduring opposition for what you believe, like Jesus did? That's a valid application, I think, for many of you. But I think we also need to ask the other question, do you see yourself in this narrative standing with Jesus' opponents? It's possible to be a Christian, to be born again, and yet fail to come to Jesus as he invites us to. There are times that Christians turn back to the empty cisterns of this world. There are times when we as Christians fall into old patterns of thinking, lies, or we fall back into the ruts, the deep ruts of sinful habits that we once walked in. The people who, in verse 13, failed to speak openly of Jesus did so because of fear of what others would say about them. Do you see that in yourself? Is there anything in your heart that is ashamed of Christ or reluctant to speak up about him in the workplace, with your family, with your friends, because of what they might say about you? In verse 17, Jesus calls us to be willing to do God's will, whatever it is, whatever the cost. But a little self-reflection here. What commands of God do you struggle with? What clear commands of God in his word do you struggle to be willing to do? What are you reluctant to trust Jesus with? Friends, when a Christian sins, somebody who's tasted God's goodness, who experiences his grace, who believes that Jesus is the living water, when we sin, we may think, oh man, I knew better than this. And I still did it. And we may be tempted to believe that in light of that, surely God's done with me. God's fed up with me. I knew better. Friends, in that moment of despair, remember not only what we sang this morning, our sins there are many, his mercy is more. 
but also listen to Jesus cry out to you again. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Hear him, believe him, leave your empty cistern again, trust in him again, and be satisfied. Let's pray.